1: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and the grim side of happily ever after. Every episode of The Waves, you get a new feminist to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Laura Miller, a books and culture columnist for Slate. One of the things we're going to be talking about is fairy tales. Fairy tales, like myths, are the oldest form of human storytelling, and they have always been closely linked to women. The great 19th century collectors of fairy tales like the Brothers Grimm presented them as stories for children, stories passed on by grandmothers and nursemaids and aunties. But today, folklorists believe that traditional stories like these were meant for a mixed audience of adults and children. The use of fairy tales to entertain and teach is something that has endured throughout the ages. And there's a reason we keep getting big screen adaptations of stories like Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast. It's not just because they've become Disney properties. So what is it about this type of story that makes us keep coming back? What do the new iterations have to say about how we view women? Our guest today is Kelly Link, the author of the new story collection, White Cat, Black Dog, Seven Stories, each based on a particular fairy tale. I've been a huge fan of Kelly's since reading her very first short story collection, Stranger Things Happen, all the way back in 2001. And I adore the way she mixes myth, everyday life, and pop culture to create something entirely new. When we get back from the break, Kelly is going to join me from her farmhouse in Massachusetts to talk about White Cat, Black Dog, and the fairy tales that inspired it. Stay with us. Hey, Wave listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too. Recently, we've been talking about how movies have become sexless and the benefits of a dull marriage and so
2: much more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Waves. I'm joined by Kelly Link today. Kelly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I am thrilled to be able to talk to you about your new book, White Cat, Black Dog. I want to start With um, kind of the big picture, because I have been just a fan of your work for so long. I think there's a story in your first collection, Stranger Things Happen, that epitomizes the way that you work with, in a way that blends ancient myths and popular culture to create stories that speak to these these big eternal themes while also being funny and relatable and it's called the girl detective and we all know who that is because for some of us nancy drew is just as iconic a figure as cinderella or i don't know orpheus and she travels to the underworld in search of her mother this girl detective and you have another story in that collection travels with the snow queen that is based on the hans christian anderson fairy tale so um Well, this new book is kind of deliberately and systematically based on fairy tales. Um, You've always incorporated them into your work. And I'm just sort of curious, when you picked a particular fairy tale, were you sometimes saying, I want to tell this story and what fairy tale does it relate to? Or did you start with the fairy tale? How did you choose the particular fairy tales?
2: For the most part, uh, I had a story that I wanted to tell. There are a couple of stories where I began with the fairy tale and then thought about what I could do with do with that story. But mostly the stories began with a character or with a with a kind of image um, that I knew I wanted the story to move towards. And then I would begin to think about possible fairy tales that I, I could use to hang that image on or to insert that character into. And and then to think about whether I wanted it to be a uh, very close retelling, or if I wanted to um, camouflage or make make the fairy tale as invisible as possible.
1: An interesting thing about fairy tale inspired short fiction is that it is seems to be most popular with women, women writers, and you know there's often the attempt to sort of retell the the fairy tale from a perspective that might seem more feminist although arguably they aren't necessarily non-feminist if you know if you know what i mean was there something particular you're trying to do with these you know like with angela carter's famous collection the bloody chamber she was often trying to break open an established story and take it someplace totally different but that might have seemed more important back in the 70s when she was doing that than it does to you now. I'm just sort of curious if,
2: if there was a particular way that you approached the original material like a particular goal. That is a very interesting question. I, I love Angela Carter. Um, I actually have a copy of The Old Wives' Tale book in front of me because I was, I was looking at that introduction again. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do something that would feel duplicative um, of, of work that she'd already done. What I wanted for myself in this was to, to deliberately engage out in the open with the kind of work that I am always engaged with anyway. I'm not even sure that to say it, it borrows the framework is correct, but it comes from, it, it sort of wells up from a couple of sources um, ghost stories is a big one, but fairy tales is the other big one. And it seemed as if it would be not just a pleasurable experiment, but it would change in some way the way that I worked, if I began with a, a statement to myself uh, in the subtitle that, that here is one of the sources for the story that I'm going to be going to be writing actually, when I say that, I think the story that I'm going to be telling because fairy tales often feel more told than they feel written. And that also was sort of a uh, a useful framework for myself to allow myself to feel as if I was telling something rather than writing something.
1: That's so interesting, because I think that really the roots of the fairy tale are not are in the oral tradition, and while people think of them as being stories that grandmothers told children, you know, adults told children, lots of folklorists believe that they were stories that women swapped with each other while they were doing work with their hands, you know. Sewing or churning or something like that. How is a story that is told different from a story that's written? And do you feel like there's some kind of gender connection there?
2: There may be, and part of it is, I think that the two modes telling and, and writing have different kinds of authority attached to them. I kind of crave the authority of the storytelling voice that that tells that has a conversational aspect to it that feels maybe a little bit more personal, that, that to me there is a kind of strength there that allows me, allows me I guess, a voice. And if I am writing, there is something interior to the idea of writing. It's almost as if you were pulling something out of the interior. Whereas if I'm telling, I already imagine um, a kind of audience for myself. Uh, I imagine that there is slightly more um, back and forth, but it also is closer to, I think, the kind of relationship that I, I like to imagine, that as you're saying, that it is a story told in, in company, that the audience maybe is is commenting back. You know, maybe that I, idea, especially of, of telling, is is gendered, that when I imagine telling... I'm not just imagining my voice. I'm I'm imagining uh, a kind of a, a conversational telling.
1: And the stories also come from kind of a collective place sometimes too. Well, I mean, the fairy tales obviously do.
2: Everyone in their head has has a version of the most common fairy tales, and there are going to be aspects of that fairy tale inside your head that are that are personal. The things that feel important about it. They may be the same things that other people also find important. But I think that there's there's something deeply personal about how we imagine a fairy tale pattern and when we're thinking about it for ourselves. Great.
1: Well, one of the patterns that you've used more than once is the story of someone who loses their beloved and who has to, you know, has to travel to all of these outrageous places and and endure all of these trials, and and enlist the help of this kind of animal assistance, and and to to find that loved one who's been stolen away, that beloved who has been stolen away. I was fascinated that you, in this new book, you have a story where half of a gay couple does that. It turns out that his husband is. Uh, he had stolen his husband from the Queen of Hell, and <laughs> she took him back. And then you also had travels with the Snow Queen, which is a similar concept. There's this kind of super, you know, supernatural force that has taken the beloved away. And and I guess this probably also has its roots in the Cupid and Psyche myth from from Greek mythology. And I just I just want to I'm wondering what attracts you to that particular motif.
2: Often, I think what I like about it are um, the accessories. I like the idea of somebody going on a long quest. I really love the idea of, of the animal helper, you know, or the wind who comes and, and helps. But also, I, I think I, I love a romantic comedy. I, I, love a, I love a story about somebody who goes and does a lot of very hard work. Uh, on behalf of um, someone that they love. I do love in in east of the sun, west of the moon, that it is a that there's a happy ending there. And I realized that that I, I took this premise and I made something out of it that is not entirely happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the story kind of ends with a, with a question, but I, I at least got to spend time with this this sort of uh, romantic comedy.
0: Hey Waves listeners, it's Shayna Roth. Your Slate Plus segment this week is another episode of our weekly and just like that recap. Every week from now until the end of August, I'll be taking over your weekly plus segment to talk about season two of the Sex and the City sequel series with your favorite slatesters like Daisy Rosario, Heather Schwedell, Luke Winky, and more. If you're not currently a Slate Plus member, you can sign up now by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus to get bonus content for The Waves, along with all of the other Slate podcasts. You'll also get unlimited access to the Slate site. No hitting that pesky paywall. Go to slate.com slash thewavesplus to learn more and sign up now. slate.com slash thewavesplus.
1: Back to the waves. My guest today is Kelly Link, author of the new fairy tale inspired short story collection, White Cat, Black Dog. One of the things people really want from fairy tales is like a moral, right? Like that's often, like they're supposed to teach a lesson or deliver some kind of rule of thumb for life. I don't get the impression that that's something that you particularly want to do or feel empowered to do.
2: When you say that, that people want to moral from fairy tales, I think, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and I, I do think I think that there are some very general, hard to argue with pieces of advice, often in fairy tales, such as uh, treat animals well, be polite to old ladies.
1: Um, <laughs> That's a really important, you <laughs> know.
2: <laughs> uh, but and, and maybe, and just and to, to strike out, strike out and sort of follow the path that, that seems open to you. Um, but I, I don't particularly think about morals when I think of fairy tales. What I think of is, um, what I think of is adventure or, um, <laughs> you know, large events befalling people, which which does feel true to life, except. It's more compressed in a fairy tale. Large things sort of keep on happening until the story is over, after which point you kind of hope that large events don't befall those characters uh, in the future. One of the things that I like about fairy tales is they are often about people who are trying their best, who are, in fact, pretty well-behaved, but who also are, are, are pretty brave in terms of doing the right thing. And maybe that is moral, the idea that, that, you know, you should speak up when there is injustice, or you should sort of listen to good advice, but sort of uh, disregard disregard people who are ill-intentioned. Maybe there is something moral in that. I don't know why I'm so suspicious of the idea of morals.
1: I think when people think about fairy tales as offering some kind of model, they often think of the happy ending like people say i want my fairy tale ending and then when you actually think about it you think well most fairy tales are actually it's a happy ending just because they of where they choose to end it you know <laughs> and Absolutely. then when the new star story starts up again it's always about the king you know after the wedding or whatever it's always about the king and queen who can't have kids who have to do this or that you know it's just it's just it's kind of arbitrary
2: I think the idea of the happy ending is often things have been restored. Uh, maybe, the, the, maybe the king has changed. Maybe there's a new king instead of the old. Maybe the marriage is beginning. Um, but, but there's the idea of a kind of balance being restored. The changes are small ones. I think that, that if I have a quarrel with fairy tales, it's that there's no large institutional change. <laughs> You know, that that, that small small happiness is possible or happiness within an established framework is possible. But uh, the poor people are still going to be poor on the whole. It's just that somebody may have gotten to move up. So let's talk a
1: little bit about your... Life is a writer. You live in a farmhouse in Massachusetts, and you have dogs, and you have chickens, and you have an excellent husband named Gavin and a daughter. And you and Gavin have been running a small publishing house and um, putting out the kinds of books that you love, including your own books, for a couple of decades now. And you even own a bookstore in East Hampton called Book Moon that people should check out if they're ever in the area. Um, and just listening to all of this, I think, oh, this sounds like somebody's fantasy of the the writer's life, <laughs> and. Um, <clears throat> But as someone who recently moved to a small town, I also know that sometimes when you want to get away from it all, what you have to sacrifice is sort of the community of other writers. Not always, but a lot of the time. You know, like the idea of getting away from it all, sometimes some of the all is actually kind of a good thing. But um, you, I know, often meet with two fellow writers, Cassandra Clare and Holly Black, who are mostly known for writing YA fantasy and really hugely popular work. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about this. I mean, this is, again, part of your whole charmed life thing, <laughs> where you get to hang out with these <laughs> these other writers as well as being able to get away with it all. But um, can you tell me what those friendships are like and how they affect your work? And do you feel like Cassie and Holly have had a big effect on your work? I mean, has, has having that particular community changed your work, do you
2: think? I am sure that it has, in the sense that we talk through we talk through with each other the projects that we are working on. And I think that one of the earliest things that I learned was that talking through a project for me did not distort that project. Uh, it didn't mean that I was no longer to access the things about it that made it interesting. You know, we were talking about fairy tales and the idea of of community and gossip. And for me, it felt like that, that it was, that there is a, the collective approach um, to the things that, that I am most interested in, which are not just, you know, the things that I'm writing about, but the question of how best to work as a writer, what it means to have a career as a writer. How genre operates? Um, what are the what are the pieces of a story pattern um, that feel most essential, uh, and which pieces of a, a story pattern are variable? That working and talking with two other writers has um, made it possible to have discussions about this and that. My point of view, which is necessarily limited because I'm only one person. Having access to two other patterns of thought about how storytelling can work uh, is enormously enriching for me. Um, And I really love being in an environment where if I write a scene and it feels stale to me or it feels as if it doesn't quite have the quality that I want, being able to pass it across the table to another writer and say, will you take a look at this? and then maybe we can talk about it um that that there's an editorial aspect to the community you get that that
1: sort of not instant feedback but it is like the one of the things about being an oral storyteller is you can tell when you're you're losing your audience you know and you're and and when they're you know leaning forward and when they're sort of slumping back and and it's great to just have that um group of other storytellers there to sort of just get a quick read on it if you're worried that you're entering into the slumping back part. And I also just have to wonder, you know, for many years, you have a novel coming out in about a year. And, you know, you've only published short stories before. And I always had the impression that you were, you just felt the novel wasn't a congenial form to you, which I think is totally fine because your short stories are fantastic. But I'm also wondering if maybe they you Know Cassie and Holly helped you do this thing, which maybe or convinced you that it was worth doing, or you know, it, it, it you know, they might have played a role in helping you because I know
2: writing that novel was grueling for you, it was. Um, and absolutely, when I sold the previous collection, Get in Trouble to Random House, Holly Black said to me, Uh, you should also sell them a novel because if you don't sell them a novel and write it deliberately. You will write it accidentally. Uh, and that felt true. She pointed out that my short stories were getting longer and longer um, and that, that I seemed to be tempted by the, by, the, by the deeper water of the novel. And I will agree with you that, that I don't find the novel form congenial, um, but I did find it interesting And even before setting down to write it, the idea of working on a novel seemed interesting uh, because it would be something new. And I absolutely think because I have been writing with them for years now, for over, well over a decade, um, I have workshopped any number of of novels with them. I've sat with them while they are uh, in agony, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Writing their novels. It's not that it seemed like it would be fun, but it did seem possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you to Cassie and Holly
1: for that. But alas, that is all that we have time for today. I want to thank Kelly Link so much for coming to the waves to talk about her wonderful new book, White
2: Cat, Black Dog. Thank you so much.
1: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We'd love to hear from you, so email us at thewaves@slate.com. And The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place.
0: Hey, Waves listeners, just a heads up. This segment contains spoilers for And Just Like That, Episode 3. Hey, Waves listeners, it's Shayna Roth. Every week, we're posting a recap of the Sex in the City sequel, And Just Like That, exclusively for Slate Plus members. Here's a little bit of what Slate writer Luke Winky and I had to say about Episode 3. What are this show's politics? Last episode, there was, like, a weird comment about Democrats while Carrie was at a store with Charlotte. Breathe.
2: Mmm. Unknown caller. Better not be the Democrats again.
0: This episode, you have a guy wearing a tie-dye mask and a, like, N95 mask underneath that, and that guy apparently has BO, which, I mean, didn't people smell bad jokes die, like, 10 years ago? That was weird. And then nobody cares when a guy is full-blown shoving jewelry in his pockets. But then Carrie yells out, I have COVID. And suddenly everyone loses their minds.
2: What's he doing? What the fuck is this guy doing? His cater waiter is stealing my shit. Security help. Somebody do something. I have COVID. Security.
1: Someone.
0: This guy is stealing my stuff. Somebody help me. And then, as you mentioned, you have. This scene in the school where all of these middle-aged women are talking about being on this milf list, and then a kid walks out—a minor. He's in high school, and they're all like drooling.
2: You
3: damn bitch. You damn bitch. Oh. 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 Why do I feel
1: like Blanche Dubois? Yeah.
0: Like it's all so bad, and it felt very
3: regressive. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, like, I, I'm glad you brought this up. I feel like my parents are are, are good, solid Democrat voters. You know, I, I've been around a lot of people of this age bracket that, you know, skew left. I kind of notice in them what I notice in the show where, like, there's, like, a real desire to, like, live by the right code of ethics, to be, like, quote-unquote woke. And you, you obviously see that with how diverse the cast has gotten and just how they're just not, I mean, some of those old sexist City episodes of not age well and they've they've really tried to make an effort to not atone for that or at least be aware of it you know it's a kind of you know they, 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 obviously the the show is dealt with you know cancel culture things like that but i do feel like people that that demographic even if they want to demonstrate that or want to live by that there is still a part of them that feels maybe a little bit resentful or like a little maybe feels that all this stuff might be the slightest bit stupid or like that that people might be overreacting a little bit or and a little bit of exhaustion which i don't think that that in itself is necessarily like you know, you're you're not evil for feeling that way necessarily, but I, I do kind of notice that in this show. It's a show where people of this age demographic are trying to engage with this stuff and 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 kind of live by it. But there has to be a voice somewhere in their head that are still seem a little bit exasperated by it. Does that make sense?
0: It does, and it's weird because I could almost forgive the we're grown women and and we're gonna go ooh over a cute teenager, almost, <laughs> but then you couple that in the same episode where a sound guy goes fishing down the shirt of Nia Wallace when her mic slips while they're recording a documentary.
1: I think my mic slipped down.
0: Oh, Brian.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm on it.
2: I'm sorry. Uh, oh, I'll okay. get that for you. It's
3: fine. Hard um, in my reach. I just got it. Oh,
2: yeah, to sure. Corporate. Of course. Yeah. The <laughs> hell did you buy me dinner first? <laughs> you know what? I, I really
1: think we got it and we're running over. So I think we can just wrap it up.
3: Copy, if you <laughs> like. Okay. Um, were you serious about that dinner?
0: I have been on documentary crews, and there's no world in which a man would just stick his hand down a woman's shirt. I don't care where her mic is located. And then he says, yeah, I'd love to take you out. and And she's into it this is not great guys.
3: Yeah. It was a little tough. Uh, so it was one thing in the beginning where like, uh, okay. I, maybe I can suspend my disbelief, that this is, this is the only recourse here that he just has to kind of shove his hand down, down our shirt. But then like, uh, is like are you serious about that date <laughs> like <laughs> that part's like okay if this was attempting to be like you know just a maybe a little frop but still a meat cute of like oh this is awkward you know hey we're stuck on this desert right, island right. together what what else is there what are those that's that's fine uh, that part was a little odd i, I don't know if there's a, if there's a reckoning or like uh coming or if they're going to try to engage with this a little bit more but uh but right now this is a world where the best place to uh meet a hot divorcee and they're uh, 50s and 40s is to uh, do it at work.
0: I know. I really, for her, I just, I want them to bring back the guy in the bar from, I think it was episode one or two who yeah, he used was to be hot. on CSI. He was hotter than right? the other day. Right? Right? Bring yeah. him
3: back. He, is, he has to come back. I, I hope would be so. shocked if he's gone.
0: I hope so. I hope so. They had they had some real chemistry. I liked it. If you want to hear the whole conversation and get all the weekly episodes of our and just like that recap, head on over to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a slate plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus.
3: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts.